You can be seated. Good morning. Last week, we began our Advent season, or kind of introduced it last week with uh, Mary, and we looked at her story and how her story fits into this gospel narrative that we find during this season. Each week, we're going to be looking at a different character, and so I'm going to ask you a question. Who is the favorite character that you have in the whole narrative of Jesus's incarnation? Uh, Maybe you're intrigued with Herod. Uh, the king that was just like so into himself that he felt threatened by everybody around him, Uh, a guy that had so much power and then seemed so powerless also at the same time. Maybe you're more intrigued with the wise men or we would say uh, these guys that came from a long ways off, probably from Babylon, traveled so far because they saw something in the sky. Now, you just think, you know, if I saw something great in the sky, I don't know that I would travel, but they knew something, and we don't know how exactly they knew what they knew, but they knew something, and this was significant, and so these guys come from a long way off to see uh, Jesus. What about the religious leaders? I mean, the guys who are stenched in Jewish history, and yet when the wise men did show up and they asked Herod, where is the one born king of the Jews? And he's like, I don't know anything about this. So he goes to the, um, the religious leaders and says, hey, where is the king going to be born? And they go back and they quote the prophet and say, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But they never even went and checked it out. They were literally three miles away from where Jesus was born, and they never went and checked it out. Why? Because they had their religion. That is so interesting to me, that you would have all of this history of waiting for this day, and then when that day comes, you don't even care enough to go and check it out. Maybe you find the shepherds interesting. I'm going to save them because we're going to talk about them next week. Maybe Mary last week. Maybe that's the character. Well, I want to introduce you to another guy who's kind of in the background of this whole thing, and his name is Joseph. Joseph is the stepfather of Jesus because he's not the actual father of Jesus because Jesus' father is in heaven. But I want to call Joseph the man in the shadows. The reason is he's introduced to us here, and we know that he has this role in the birth of Jesus. And then we see him one other time when Jesus gets lost, and they have a whole entourage of people that are traveling, and Jesus has gone to the temple, and he's confounding all the religious leaders with his great wisdom as he talks about Torah and law, but they apparently had forgotten him, and you know Mary thought Joseph had him, and Joseph thought Mary had him, and they walked away, walked a good while, a while away before they realized they didn't have him, so they have to go back, and of course they found him there, and that's the only other time that we see. Joseph. We don't see him in Jesus' ministry. We don't see him referred to. Mary's there, um, but Joseph is out of the picture at that moment. We don't, we're not even told what happened to him. We assume that he has already died at this time. Um, so this guy who is so like figurative here in the beginning is kind of like a man in the shadows, if you will. Not a whole lot said about him. But what we do know about Joseph, we find right here, his father was Jacob. I find that interesting. Jacob and Joseph I think that was intentional, wasn't it? (laughs) They were trying to relive the old days. The only problem was Jacob and Joseph, when you look at Joseph, he rose to fame. He was second in command of Egypt. He was very wealthy. We know that this Joseph was not wealthy. Uh, We know that because when Jesus was born, he and Mary went and offered a sacrifice in the temple, which was customary, but they offered a turtle dove 
And that is indicative of a very poor family because if you can't afford a sheep or a goat, that's what you are allowed to give because you couldn't afford the other. So that we know that they were not of great means. We also know that he was from Bethlehem because of the whole census. That's why they had to go there. But they were living in Nazareth. He is from the tribe of Judah. And we also know that he is in the line of David. Matter of fact, when the angel speaks to him in his dream, he actually addresses him that way. Joseph, son of David, talking about the great King David. We also know that Joseph worked as a laborer. Some people think that he was a carpenter. Some people say that he was a stonemason. Uh, the reason is the word that translates into carpenter in most of our translations is really a, a funny word that's really hard to nail down exactly what kind of work it was. A lot of people assume stonemason because that was actually what was needed in the area that he lived in in that time. Um, but it could be that he was a carpenter. If he was, isn't that interesting that he probably taught Jesus to work with wood and nails, and those would be the things that would become the implements of Jesus's death later on. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's kind of fascinating to the story. One thing we do know about Joseph is that he was a just man. Uh, he was all about justice. He loved the law of God. He was a law abider. We know that because he is named that way in our passage today. So Matthew begins his story. Remember, Luke tells the whole story from the perspective of Mary. Matthew tells us the story from the perspective of Joseph more so. So look at what it says in verse 18 again. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, keep that word tucked in the back of your head, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now that word betrothed, that's an interesting word and it's an important word because a lot of us would read this passage and we would think to ourselves, um, you know, because you know how the story goes, once she was found to be with child, he knew this is not my child, then he was going to divorce her. And you think to yourself, but they were only betrothed. They haven't even been married yet. Why would, why would he need to divorce her? Uh, customary, culturally speaking, betrothal is just as binding as the marriage ceremony itself. So that's a little bit different than what we tend to think of as engagement. We kind of relate the betrothal period to our engagement period, but that's not true of our engagement period. You can break off an engagement, not go into the ceremony, and you know everything's good. But that's not true in that day and time. The betrothal was just as binding. Matter of fact, remember, there is a bride price that has to be paid. So when all that, that all happens at the front end during the betrothal. Now, why do they have a betrothal and how long is it? Well, we don't know exactly. It depends. Every one of them could be different. It was a time set aside to make sure that the other family or the other party was who they said they were. Because remember, they don't have a ton of records to go and, and, and look back on, or maybe there were promises made, or maybe there was even payments to be done. And so there was time given for all of those things to, to take place and to happen. So you could watch that person and make sure they were who you thought they were. Because remember, they didn't date. These were arranged marriages. So the betrothal period was for that purpose. Now, we know that they didn't last longer than a year, but we also know that many of them didn't last even a year. They could be way shorter than that if need be. So that's why in this 
passage right here, it talks about this betrothal because this is just as binding as the marriage ceremony itself. Now for a moment, let me just kind of paint a picture of life in that day and time and how joyous the wedding occasion would be. So after you betroth yourself one to another, then you begin the process of planning the wedding, however far off it will be. Some of them, it would have to be further off because they would have to save money for this grand occasion because it was a grand occasion. No matter how wealthy or poor you were, Matter of fact, young Jewish men and women, especially if they were poor, one of the only things that they really had to look forward to in their life was their wedding day. Because this was a time that no matter how poor you were, you were treated as a king or a queen for two weeks straight. All of the ceremonies were two weeks long. Now, the ceremony itself didn't last that long, but they had like a feast time around the ceremony. This is when they would actually consummate the marriage. This is when the marriage actually moves into what we would think of as normal customary marriage where they exchange vows and there's a signing of a ketubah and all those kinds of things, okay? Now, this, these two weeks were a time where all the people of the community and their family and the people who lived far off would even make a journey to come and wish them well and to bring them gifts. During this time, they would literally sit on a throne, the man on a throne and the woman on a throne, and they were literally treated and seen as a king and queen. And that's all they did for two weeks is they would just eat and welcome visitors to come in, and they would celebrate their life. Now, when that was over, it was back to hard work. It was back to reality. So this really was the highlight of every young Jewish girl's thought, every young Jewish boy's dream. This was going to be a grand occasion where everyone could focus in on them. So the betrothal period was moving towards that day of fulfillment and celebration. Now, what we find is in this story, during this betrothal period, Mary shows up to be with child. Now that complicates things. Not only complicates things, it makes it a really dark moment, right? I mean, think about all the expectation and the hopes and, and the celebration that you're looking forward to, and now something has come into it that has ruined every bit of it. Now, the law actually talks about what you can do during this time. If you are found to be with child before you actually enter into that ceremony part during that betrothal period, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 20 to 21 says that the woman who's found to be that way should be brought to the door of her father's house and stoned to death so that the evil may be removed from the congregation of Israel. Now, that's steep. That's heavy. And you think about that for a moment. I mean, that's like, wow. I mean, you talk about putting a damper on a celebration. I mean, that's it right there. But it talks also about the seriousness of God and how serious he takes sin. And one thing that we know in this, I think that Matthew may even be creating this, this juxtaposition for us because he calls um, Joseph a just man, which means he's a Torah abider, like he loves Torah and he keeps Torah. He keeps the law. And yet what we find in the story is he doesn't do what the law actually says to do. So let's continue on with this a little bit. Let's look at the next verse, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, think about that for a moment. This, this Joseph is 
now all of a sudden having everything that he hoped for fall apart. Mary has turned up pregnant. How did he even find out about this? Because the scripture actually tells us in the previous passage that she was found to be with child. Doesn't say that she came forward and said anything. So when we put those two uh, narratives together from the gospel of Luke and the gospel of Matthew, it makes you ask the question, how did Joseph find out? It seems that he found out when she couldn't hide it anymore. So that means that she had this whole visitation from an angel because we know that happened way before she even knew anything and yet she had the child and she was growing with this child and yet she apparently had never said anything to Joseph about what happened. And so Joseph, finally, they get to this point and he comes forward and he's like, Mary, um, I I know what's going on here and I think you need to tell me what's happening. And she probably said, you know, I, I, I didn't know how to tell you this. It was so hard. I just couldn't find the words. But now that you brought it up, I'll tell you. An angel of the Lord appeared to me. It was Gabriel, matter of fact. And um, Gabriel said, hey, you are chosen among all women of Israel, and you are going to be with child that the Holy Spirit has given to you and creating inside of you. And um, you are going to give birth to the Messiah, and he's going to be the savior of the people. So that's how it happened. And Joseph is looking, going, now, I've heard some stories. And sometimes you probably look at children and go, is that the best you could come up with? Joseph didn't say that. He's probably like, that's pretty good. That, that is a really, I mean, she's thought about all the details and everything about this. I bet you, though, that in this story, everything in Joseph wanted to believe that story. But it was just too good to be true. This poor family, God chose us of all the people in Israel to to be the ones to bring the Messiah into the world. Couldn't God do better than that? I just, that's that's too good to be true. And so Joseph has this conflict because he loves Mary and he's betrothed to her, and he's looking forward to to giving his life to her. And now, all of a sudden, this problem comes in that just creates chaos in this situation, chaos in his mind, chaos in his heart, chaos in his spirit. He is torn asunder. He doesn't know what to do. He genuinely loves this woman, wants to believe this story with everything that he has, but he cannot. Can't believe that. There's so much about this that he just doesn't know, but there's one thing that he does know, and he knows this for sure. I'm not the father of that baby. What kind of feelings do you think he was experiencing? Disbelief? Probably disillusionment? Anger? Maybe even rage? Embarrassment? Shame? Cheated? Confused? conflicted. I mean, this was supposed to be the greatest time in their lives, and now it's turned to chaos. I bet you Joseph cried harder that night than he had his entire life. But he had to make a decision. What was he going to do? Verse 19 says, I'm going to put her away quietly. I'm going to divorce her quietly. Now, again, he tells us that he's a just man. And being a just man, he is a keeper of Torah. 
And yet this just man decides not to do what Torah commands in this situation. I think that's beautiful because what it tells us is that he understands the heart of Torah. It's not about legalism. It's about understanding the purpose of it. Now, he was an observant Jew, and under the law, he had the right to divorce Mary for her unfaithfulness, seemingly. Now, if you really are to be honest about it, the law actually forbids him to marry Mary under these circumstances. So Joseph, being a just man, decided not to do what justice required, and instead, he decides to divorce her quietly. Now, there are two forms of divorce. There is a quiet divorce, and there is a public divorce, or we could call them public and private divorce. Now, the public divorce was you would bring your wife before the city leaders at the front gate of the city, and you would declare whatever reason you had for divorcing her, and there were lots of reasons that you could divorce your wife, and you could make a public spectacle of her if you wanted to. Or some people would choose to divorce quietly, which means you only had to come before two witnesses. Two witnesses, and then you could make this statement and you could enter into a divorce. This is what Joseph chose to do because even though he couldn't understand this situation, he still loved and cared for Mary, and I believe that he wanted to believe this story, and for whatever reason, he said, you know what, let's just take care of this quietly. And in the midst of his conflicting feelings, and in the midst of all these options that he has, and in the midst of these chaotic circumstances, that night he has a dream. Matthew verse 20 of chapter 1. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to draw out a couple of phrases in this passage. First of all, it says, as he considered these things. In other words, in the midst of the chaos of his mind and his heart and his soul, because that's what he was going through. In the midst of these things, all of these thoughts, all of these options, all these considerations, all of these hopes and dreams that are coming crashing down, in the midst of this chaos, Joseph has a dream. And in this dream, the angel appears to him and says, do not fear. Now, we've heard that over and over again, haven't we? It's almost like every time an angel comes into this situation, talks to Mary, uh, whoever, Zacharias, hey, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. This is a common theme when the angel's showing up and telling them what's about to happen. And I know that there was fear in Joseph's heart. It was a fear of what other people were going to think, a, a fear of where life's going to go now, a fear of will I ever be able to pick the, the pieces of this and get on with my life. There was all kinds of fear, and fear is a natural emotion that we all experience at some point in our lives, probably every day of our lives to some extent. It can stem from a whole lot of sources such as the fear of failure, the fear of being rejected, the fear of uncertainty of what the future is going to bring. And in Joseph's case, his fear was likely rooted in the shame and the humiliation that both he and Mary were going to experience because of this unexpected pregnancy. Fear often leads us down a path of doubt and worry. Fear often causes us to lose sight of God's faithfulness and promise. Fear can paralyze us. 
Fear can prevent us from taking action or making decisions. Fear can cause us to be awfulizers. I've told you about that before, but awfulizing is just when you take a situation and you make it as awful as you can possibly make it, okay? So you say, here's where we are right now, and this means this. And if that happens, then I know this is going to happen next. And once that happens, it's going to open the door for all of this. And I know this is going to go bad. And then I'm going to be. And so what happens is you are already fearing things five, six, seven steps down from this. It hasn't even happened yet, but you're already fearing the worst possible scenario and the worst set of consequences that you could possibly imagine. And it just creates this cloud of chaos in your heart and soul, this discontentment in your heart this confusion in your mind, and it paralyzes your actions. And in the midst of that, the reason that you have gone on this long journey down this dark hole is because you have failed to realize who God is, that God is a God who visits us in chaos, that God is the one who in chaotic situations will often bring peace in the midst of it. The angel isn't finished yet. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the angel explains just enough and nothing more. I mean, in this dream, you know, I, I, Joseph is probably thrilled that he's gotten some confirmation himself, but at the same time, let's admit, this isn't a very thorough explanation. Just Hey, Joseph, don't be afraid to marry her because she's with child by the Holy Spirit. Whoop, and the TV goes off, you know? And it's like, okay, there was something about this that was so profound that Joseph doesn't doubt it. He's faithful, he's obedient. But at the same time, let's just be honest that it doesn't answer a whole lot of questions. It's just like what was said to Mary. Mary said, hey, how can this be since I am, am not even married yet? And the angel goes, oh, I forgot to tell you that. Um, what it is, is that the most high has overshadowed you. And that's how you've become pregnant. All right, see you later. I mean, like even in there, I mean, she rejoices, she celebrates, but that's not a full explanation. Do you know why? Do you know why so many times when God shows up, what he says is so vague? Here's why. Because what he has planned is so incredible. There is no words in any human language that can actually explain it. So it has to be vague. If he told them what was actually gonna happen, it would scare them to death. It would overwhelm them. It would confound them. It would paralyze them. They have no idea what's in store for them. So God just generally says, listen, it's me. Keep walking. Come on with me. I got you. And that sometimes is all we get, and it's always what we need. This angel says the baby is from the Holy Spirit, thus a baby that's not of man. He doesn't say much more than that. No more information about how this divine process occurs. It remains one of the greatest mysteries of our faith. And in fact, in the last over 2,000 years of theologians expounding upon this, we today know nothing more about how this can happen than Joseph did that day when he had this dream. 
But the angel does add a little detail about who this baby will be. He said that his name will be Jesus, which means Savior. Now, again, we get the word Jesus because the name was translated several times. Now, Jesus isn't the actual translation. It should be Joshua, okay? Because that's the way it translates exactly from Hebrew into English. It would be Joshua. Yeshua is the Hebrew. But because of our translations and how they've gone from this language to this language to this language, that's how we end up with the name Jesus. But Jesus in our language and the way we get it means the same thing as uh, Joshua, which means God saves. And that's exactly what the angel says. He's going to be the savior. His mission is to save his people from what? From their sins. And that's all. That's not a long message that the angel delivers, but it's enough. And Matthew then gives us just a little bit more information. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So Matthew is kind of inserting here a commentary saying, hey, this is all in fulfillment of a prophecy from long ago. And then he quotes the prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So just notice that Matthew gives us this prophetic fulfillment, and along with that, he gives us another name. So I want you to hold on to that for a moment. I want you to think about the fact that we have two names here, uh, Joshua, or Jesus, which means God saves, and Emmanuel, God with us. So verses 24 and 25, I believe, are insufficiently celebrated as some of the greatest Christmas verses that we have. You know why? Because they reveal the heart of Joseph's, I believe, finest qualities. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So it's easy to miss just what happened here. Um, when it says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, and then it says that Joseph woke up and he did exactly what the angel called him to do, you know what happened there? They got married without all the pomp and circumstance. In other words, that date that they were looking forward to, that moment when they would be treated like kings and queens, when all the family would celebrate... They gave all that up to go ahead and get married then. Why? Because Mary didn't need to continue living in ridicule. She needed someone to protect her. This young child didn't need to come into the world without a father. And so they gave up the greatest experience that a young Jewish boy and woman could hope to have and said, Let's follow God's plan for us. We need to go ahead and get married right now. And that's what they did. By marrying her quickly, he broke all Jewish custom, but he protected Mary's reputation. She was pregnant. He wasn't the father. He married her anyway. And by keeping her pure until after Jesus was born, if you think about that, he protects the whole miracle of Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit against any kind of slander that unbelievers would try and level against this story. 
by naming the baby, he exercises this incredible prerogative that a father has. And thus, by naming him, that's his official process of taking him into his own family and making Jesus his legal son. Just like Joseph, I want you to know every single one of us are going to face difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances in our lives that oftentimes may not even be of our doing. We might be cruising along, thinking life is going so great and looking forward to something's going to happen. And then in the middle of that, someone else's actions overshadow the joy. Maybe even a disease or a prognosis comes into the situation and brings this darkness and depression into our lives. Chaos. Just like Joseph, we will have chaos in our life that will bring fear and anxiety, or at least the opportunity for those things. But I think what this story is reminding us of is don't let fear drive you. And instead of letting fear drive you, choose instead to put your faith in God and trust his sovereign plan even when you can't see it or don't understand it. When we face adversity, one of the best stories you can go back to and remember is Joseph's story and how his faith helped him to overcome fear and experience peace in the midst of chaos. Because listen, this story isn't hunky-dory. It doesn't get better after this. Think about all the ridicule and the sneering and, and, and the way the people are looking at them in the community. And think about how they're trying to explain this to other people. Did they even bring up that the angel Gabriel showed up to them? Or did they just say, listen, that's too wonderful for anyone else to believe, so let's just keep that to ourselves because all they'll do is make fun of us even more. I mean, it was not an easy path moving forward, but what God gave them was a hope and a joy and a peace in the middle of their chaos. Let us also be reminded of God's faithfulness and his promises, just like he reminded Joseph. As we trust him, as we trust his plan for our lives, I want you to be reminded that you can also find peace in the midst of chaos, difficult situations. Now, I told you earlier there were two names mentioned, Jesus, which means God saves, and Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let me make a profound statement right here that you need to hear. We need both of them. And aren't you glad we have both of them? We don't have a God who saves us from a distance. We don't have a God that stands outside of our circumstances and offers us a lifeline or a rope. We have a God who comes into our situations and brings salvation in the midst of the consequences of sin and death. God saves. How? By coming among us. We need both. I'm going to make a statement. I want you to write it down because I want you to put this on the refrigerator with all the other ones I've given you over the past 20 years. By now, your refrigerator, you probably can't even open it because you've got all these things sticking on there, right? Here's, here's the statement. You ready for this? Peace has no context devoid of chaos. Let that sink in for a moment. Peace 
has no context devoid of chaos. What that means is there's no way that you can even know what peace is unless you've been in a chaotic situation. There's no way that you can even understand the power of peace or the gift of peace unless you've walked through adversity and difficulty because peace is saying in the midst of things that I can't explain, I am content. In the midst of something where I should not be content, where I should be mad, where I should be angry, for some reason, I'm content. I'm okay. I'm not angry. I'm at peace. You see, Joseph's faith allowed him to overcome his own fears and experience peace during a very challenging time in his life. And just like Joseph, we need to let faith in God and faith or a trust in his plan, even when we're faced with chaotic situations beyond explanation, we need it to take root in our lives and spring up this wonderful oak that provides a shade for us in the midst of the chaos that we live in. As we do it, that's how we experience peace in the midst of any storm. As you leave today, I want you to remember those two names, Jesus, God saves, Emmanuel, God with us. God saves us by coming among us. He saves us by coming into the midst of our chaos and being our prince of peace. And we do this by putting our faith and our trust in him. Amen? What a beautiful reminder. Number one, that the Christmas story isn't as clean and tidy as we like to present it around Christmas time. It reminds us that the story is actually very messy that it's full of opportunity for disobedience. It's full of opportunity for misunderstanding. It doesn't explain away all the circumstances that they're dealing with, and it doesn't dismiss the fact that so many people are still gonna heap ridicule upon them. But what it does say is that in the midst of difficulty, the one thing that you have to do is keep your eyes on God because he's the only one that can deliver you. He's the only one that knows what's really going on. He's the only one that's faithful to all of his promises and loving towards all that he has made. Hold on to your relationship with God and hold on to the promises that he's given to you. Let's pray. God, thank you for a wonderful reminder during such a busy season when we are faced with so many opportunities for difficulty and for chaos to erupt. There are so many temptations. There are so many distractions and busyness is just all around us. Chaos, chaos. It's the opportunity that stands before us. In the midst of such a chaotic month at the end of the year, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of this story, that in the midst of the chaos of the culture, the chaos of the mind, the chaos of the heart and soul, Lord, that's where you came into the midst of them, to begin to administer peace, which again, doesn't answer everything, doesn't clarify everything, but it does make everything right because we know that you are faithful to all the promises that you've made and that we can trust you with our very lives. Lord, thank you for loving us 
not from a distance, but loving us by coming among us in the form of Jesus in that first advent, in the form of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost as you dwell inside of us. And Lord, it's also the hope that we hold on to that one day we will be in your presence forever and all the tears will be wiped away. There'll be no more crying, no more death, no more heartache, no more separation, no more chaos. Lord, we long for that day. We look forward to that day. But until then, thank you for journeying alongside us in this chaotic world. In Jesus' name.